Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I am joining you with a special podcast recorded in our Paris office to mark the fact that I am moving from uh, a more virtual existence to a physical one. I am absolutely thrilled to be uh, joined by Tara Varma, who is the head of our Paris office, and we're going to talk about France and Europe. Uh, and uh, obviously, we are talking a few days after the French president, Emmanuel Macron, published his plans for France in 2030. We're going to look at the comments of the French presidency of the European Union and the French elections for the presidency um, in 2022, and how they feed into these big debates, uh, both about the future of France, but also the future of Europe, and in fact, even the future of the world. So Tara, thanks a lot for, for making the time to talk. Hi, Mark. Hi, everyone. I'm very happy to be back on the podcast and for the first time in person in a very, very long time, I have to say. Um, you are right. There's a lot that's going on right now uh, in Paris and, and so in Europe. <laughs> that's a very arrogant French way of, of me to say. It. But it is true that, uh, surprisingly enough, Europe has been very much part of the national political debate these days in France. So um, we just seen these plans for France in 2030, which many people are interpreting as a, a kind of early soft launch of the presidential campaign. What are the big ideas which Macron put forward? He's looking at the digital and green transformation of France, and in a way that echoes a lot uh, what the EU wants to do with its ecological and uh, digital transformation too. Um, Macron has always portrayed himself as someone who could be part of the old world, but also prepare for the new one. And uh, being part of the en old... Même temps. It's the en même temps, as usual. So <laughs> being part of the old world is... Uh, knowing the politicians, understanding the history of France, and the new world would be trying to make sure that the private sector is investing um, in new technologies and for France not to lag behind uh, both its European partners and its international partners. And I think he has very much in mind, I mean, you're right, he is he is preparing for the presidential campaign, but we've been saying that he's been preparing for the presidential campaign for a while now. And in a way, the way he handled even the COVID crisis was a way to prepare for the, the presidential campaign. We heard uh, from a number of his critics on the left that he was too right-wing, but what we did during the COVID campaign, the quoi qu'il en coûte, whatever it costs, uh, was also a way to speak to uh, the, the people of the left in France, as we say, le peuple de gauche, and to show that the, the state was ready to invest as much as possible. Here again, he is playing on both sides, talking to the state, talking to the people, talking to the corporates. And looking out at European politics, there is a, a bit of an interregnum in Germany at the moment, no government in place yet, but there's a kind of hope in Paris that if Olaf Scholz becomes the, the chancellor, the head of a traffic light coalition, that there might be uh, a better partner for, for Macron in Berlin than he's had during the Merkel years, certainly Olaf Scholz was a, a key partner for France when it came to the European Recovery Plan and was the person who I think did the most to drive a bit of sea change in, in German policy when it came to debt. Um, 
But also there is where Mario Draghi is in charge in, in Italy. Um, how does, I mean, it, it looks out, does he think that he's going to be king of Europe for, for a few months while the new government in Germany uh, comes into into being and where you have a, a kind of more positive uh, outlook from other places? Or um, uh, is he thinking about, you know, forming a triangle with, with Rome and Berlin? Or is he thinking about different kinds of partnerships? At some points, he's, he's been able to work, for example, with Mark Rutter in the Netherlands. The, the two of them together were the ones who killed uh, you know, the Manfred Weber and the idea that he would become the president of the European Union. I don't think he's heard quite a bit the critics that France couldn't go at it alone. And uh, I even wrote a paper where we, where I said that France was a lonely leader. But I think we've come to a point where uh, we see more the oxymoron part of the lonely leader than the advantages of it. And I think he's quite clear on that. And once again, with Macron, it's all about efficiency. Uh, you're right. He's looking very closely at what's happening um, in Germany. And I think there is a sense that with Olaf Scholz and with the other partners of, uh, of the coalition, um, there would be more amenity towards a, Franco, a good working Franco-German relationship, possibly um, a push on fiscal rules, on EU economic policy. But he's also been very clear that he wants strategic autonomy or for Europe to be able to move forward, uh, to be a topic not just taken up by France. And, and there is uh, clearly um, a convergence with Mario Draghi in Italy. He's looking at Mark Rutte quite a lot in the, in the Netherlands as well. Uh, he's looking much closer at the Baltic states. So Estonia was part already a few years back of the Tacuba um, mission in Mali. Today, as of today, uh, uh, October 19th, um, Lithuania has joined the two. So he's looking also at partners, different partners for different coalitions, but really on a coalition uh, of the willing type of basis, which is to him the most efficient way uh, of working inside Europe. He sees that he's used to working with the institutions, he knows them very well, but he wants to show that there is an impulsion in Europe for Europe coming from different places. So the backdrop to all of this is obviously you know, a changed international system. We've, you and I have talked quite recently about AUKUS and about uh, the Indo-Pacific, and I'm sure um, that that will be uh, a theme and the whole idea of strategic autonomy. So we should talk a, 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 a bit more about that. But before we do that, maybe going back to the two big topics that you put out there, this, this dual transition, the carbon transition and the digital transition. What do you think... Uh, the French government hopes to actually achieve in those two areas? I think it's not just about what the French government hopes to achieve. I think he wants to transform the French economy to prepare it for the 21st century, that's for sure. Um, there is a question of uh, looking at renewable energy, but he's been very clear uh, uh, in saying that renewable energies are part of the energy mix they can't be the only solution. So you need to look at what is else, uh, what is out there. And he's pushing, again, very unsurprisingly, for nuclear power a lot more. And it is a big dimension of the France 2030 project. Uh, 
he keeps saying that the nuclear energy is uh, one that um, has very low carbon emissions, that it will help with the European Green Deal, that he's ready to help other European member states with it too, um, especially right now with the energy crisis that Europe is, is going through and that worries, to be quite honest, the government quite a lot here because there is an echo uh, to the yellow vest crisis that happened three years ago. They are some, there are some... Uh, protests already happening uh, on roundabouts in France of yellow vests. It's still quite minor and marginal, but we are seeing the topic come up in French politics quite a lot. And it was, again, an energy issue that sparked the whole crisis initially. So what does that mean? Because, you know, in France, there's a, been a long habit of talking about une Europe qui protège. What does a, an Europe that protège mean on the energy issue i mean as you say you've already had your energy crisis before everyone else but now that it's becoming a central issue in so many different member states what can europe do to help it's about energy security so ensuring that member states can provide for themselves and what he says is with nuclear energy you can do that and so he's getting he's being criticized quite a bit because a number of people on the left, um, and especially the Greens, are saying that you can't move forward by doubling down on the nuclear, by investing more in it. Uh, there are a number of risks associated with it. They've been saying that for a long time. He was not so openly uh, pro-nuclear until now, and now he said it's, it's a main point of the France 2030 uh, project. He's not going to move away from it. And he, he wants to move ahead with it. He thinks France has an edge on technology there, has an edge on experience with nuclear power, and that it makes sense in the framework of the European Green Deal too. Um, a great pleasure earlier today of, of talking to Cédric O, who is your um, uh, minister in charge of the digital economy, who was talking in quite ambitious terms about uh, about the idea of digital sovereignty. How does that look from uh, from the perspective of France and the French presidency? It's hard to be digitally sovereign when you don't have digital champions. I think this is something that uh, European Commissioner Thierry Breton says a lot. Digital sovereignty, both when it comes to cybersecurity, but also the opportunities it presents uh, in terms of job making is a big priority for France right now. Um, France has also been at the forefront of pushing for a digital tax, which has not uh, uh, put it in such a good place with other European member states. But it is, again, it's, it's the en même temps. It's both pushing for a digital tax and trying to expand um, European digital sovereignty, trying to impose a standard. This is something that the EU is quite good at. We've seen it with uh, GDPR. Trying to impose a standard is, is quite good. What we've heard from our American friends is that um, while Europe is quite good at rulemaking, we're not so good at tech making for now. Yeah. So those seem to be the two pillars. There's both creating a single market and driving innovation and working out how you can do that. And then the idea of, of regulating um, the, the um, technological sphere in line with our values and trying to find a way of, of, of taking back control, I suppose, um, to coin a, uh, an Anglo-Saxon phrase. Um, so, so there are some sort of core legislative are there on the first plank, this idea of actually tech making. Um, how do you turn the EU into a continent which actually has uh, 
in uh, having missed the last industrial revolution? How, how do we put ourselves into a place where we can be players in the next one? It's about investing in research and academia, looking at startups as well, uh, learning best practices from what's happening in the US too. I think there is, at some point, the Europeans wanted to try and replicate uh, the American ecosystem. I'm not so sure for many reasons, cultural, economic, political, that we could do that. And it's also about the EU being able to build its own model. As we said, um, we, the EU is a regulatory power. It, knows how to look at rules. I think in the competitive era that we're in, rule setting and standard setting is really important and you can do that. Uh, we are not going to build digital champions from one day onward, but we can certainly facilitate an environment where this happens. And I think there is a big strength in the EU if we can um, improve the mo mobility of workers, if we can look at uh, setting several um, tech hubs, if the impulse can come from Brussels, but also from the national member states capital, that would be extremely helpful because we're seeing these hubs everywhere in the member states. So this is typically an example of uh, where Brussels can help streamline a number of processes and uh, help uh, these startups emerge too. But it's not just about startups, because if we're talking about digital champions, it needs to be really big multinationals too. And, and to have... European companies embodying this ambition uh, and this economic power, I think, would be extremely helpful. Um, and it would make the EU more attractive, too, I think. Thinking about the future is what the, this European Geopolitical Commission is supposed to be about. So those two strands, the, the green strand, the digital strand, are the kind of double transitions, but which lie at the heart of, of this idea of a geopolitical project. Um, and uh, the other, uh, I think, important element which France has been quite vocal on is this idea of strategic autonomy. And particularly in the light of, uh, you know, recent events on Afghanistan in on AUKUS, which we talked about, in the idea of, of digital, sorry, the idea. Uh, in particular, has, has come to the forefront. There is going to be a big summit during the French presidency. Um, there is the strategic compass, which is uh, being developed in Brussels, which is meant to be uh, a plan for thinking about what uh, a European strategic uh, culture might start to, to, to evolve into. At the same time, there's a parallel process within NATO with the NATO strategic concept. How do you see all those things coming together? Is it uh, possible that big things will happen during the French presidency? I mean, I hope they will. Clearly, uh, we've been experiencing quite a few strategic surprises. Both Afghanistan and uh, AUKUS constitute two of them, and they've derailed, I'd say, a little bit the French agenda. Uh, the Indo-Pacific, the European Indo-Pacific strategy that was launched basically the day after the AUKUS announcement was supposed to be a big part of what um, of a French push for for an increased European presence in the region. Um, but I think the French view on strategic autonomy is also not just about security and defense. That's the whole idea. Probably we know now the term is too controversial. It doesn't work. It trans doesn't translate well. So I think the French still need to come Which up. Which term? Strategic autonomy. Okay. Yeah. So there needs to be, I don't know, it can be strategic agency, strategic sovereignty. It can be many other things. Um, 
I do think, though, that we still need to find an idea behind it because it does. I don't think the Europeans can afford to have a piecemeal approach um, and to develop projects in many ways in many different strands. I think that is helpful too, especially if it's done in the institution, um, in the institutional framework. But there needs to be a, a bigger strategy. And it's true that the French, amongst others, have been pushing for uh, an increased um, uh, shared common strategic culture. Um, strategic autonomy is perceived very much as a French concept, but to be fair, it's, it's uh, used at least seven times in, in the global strategy that was published in June 2016, where the EU sets for itself the ambition of being more autonomous. Uh, the question is, is it autonomous from? Is it uh, autonomous to, to do something? And I, my sense is with this, uh, this commission, the idea is more to be autonomous to do a number of things and to be autonomous to do a number of things when it comes to security and defense. So we're seeing a number of PESCO projects, an increased number of PESCO so projects. So PESCO is permanent structured cooperation for those of, uh, who, who spend less time talking uh... about these things. <laughs> and the PESCO approach is a very, let's say, German traditional approach. Uh, again, very institutional. The French and Macron himself have pushed uh, for complementary additional type of ad hoc uh, uh, situations, typically the European intervention initiatives, um, to which a number of member states have joined. Um, they're looking at what strategic autonomy means in the realm of uh, the tech sector, health, uh, economic, uh, looking at how to fight against economic coercion. So I think for the French, uh, strategic autonomy is again not just about defense. We know that a number of our um, European partners tend to to irk quite a lot when they hear it because they have the sense that it has to do mostly with NATO. But I think for the French, it's not just about that. It's really the ability for the EU to defend itself when it wants to. We know that it is counter-natural for the EU to build offensive uh, instruments, offensive measures, but it certainly needs to have more defensive measures. Because what we're seeing is a number of geopolitical rivals who are very interested uh, uh, in the power that the EU has and that it sometimes often, often actually underestimates. And this is what the French are pushing for quite a lot. Um, they're, again, what they're saying is um, the EU doesn't really have a choice to be more autonomous because a number of countries uh, want to benefit from it. And... And they, you can see from here that they struggle to understand that not everyone has this view. And this is why, if you look uh, at the agenda, the, the, the number of announcements that we heard in Ursula von der Leyen's State of the Union speech in September, there is, there is an idea for a uh, European, European Union-African Union summit, so a big push on, on an Africa dimension that von der Leyen pushed herself for in her manifesto in 2019. There is going to be a European Defence Summit uh, normally in March in Toulouse, uh, where Airbus is based, so a, a Franco-German uh, company. And during this summit, um, the conclusions of the strategic compass are supposed to be presented. The strategic compass is a document, it would be basically the third European security document to have been published since 2003. Yeah. Because the global strategy, unfortunately, became... So the idea is that we're only one strategic concept away from being a superpower. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're being even more ambitious and optimistic than I am, but it's... I think, I think it's a document, first of all, it's a document if it 
because the first one which took place after the Iraq war was a very good way of both signaling yeah. to the Americans that we could be friends again but also trying to bring Europeans back together the second one ended up being a bit of a damp squib it was very long Federico Mogherini did it. it didn't really wasn't very kind of strategic it wasn't very short it was very kind of uh, it was a bit of a Christmas tree with everything in it why do we think this one's going to be different I think I mean the global strategy had also a very unfortunate calendar. I mean, it came out five days after the Brexit uh, vote. And Indeed. so the UK was supposed to be a big part of the European Union's global strategy. And suddenly all of this couldn't pan out. Um, this document, I'm hoping that we're not going to wait another five years to renew it because it is supposed to be a common assessment of uh, the European Union's strategic objectives and threats. And of course, in the current very quickly evolving geopolitical environment, our threat assessment change. We can't wait every five years for this document to be updated. I think it will make sense and it will be relevant if at least it's renewed and updated once what a year. What do we hope this document's going to achieve? Because apart from making think tanks very happy by having lots of debates about the state of the world in different places. No, it would be the first time that member states agree on a common threat assessment. This hasn't happened before. And they agree on a is, Do you think that there is a common threat assessment? Presumably, it, it's pretty obvious um, from that there are big differences of history and geography, which means that Absolutely. we don't have common threats. That's the whole point of the exercise, which was launched <laughs> under the last German presidency. It's to say, can a Pole and a Lithuanian feel as worried about the Mediterranean than a French could be worried about the eastern flank. And I will be honest with you, we are not there yet. But the whole point of the exercise is to have these exchanges to agree on a document. And the very fact that I'm hoping we'll agree on it, and I understand the discussions in Brussels are extremely tough on it, you can either decide that, you know, you get to the lowest common denominator, that it's not that ambitious. That's one way of looking at things. You can also think that all these member states who have no problem disagreeing with one another also come to a, a point of fruition where they want to move forward. And let's be very clear, every time France has put up uh, uh, an initiative, I, I've seen a number of member states who were not shy in criticizing it, both on the method and, and on the substance of the proposition too, because it's true, the French really have to be better at coordinating a priori <laughs> and not just a posteriori. Um, they need to come up with propositions that are of interest to other Europeans too. What we see is an impulsion that comes from Paris, and I think that is really interesting. But there is a way of doing things that is different and that can just be better. So maybe we can end by just talking a bit about the, the nature of Europe and the way that it hangs together. I've had you know um, lots of meetings uh, since I've been in Paris with different officials from different bits of the government. And there's a phrase which struck me um uh which i which really jumped out at me in a number of these discussions in different contexts which was uh the idea of of um the passager clandestin that you have met that are kind of um how would you translate that for for our podcast listeners but passager is traveler clandestin clandestine so someone it's well, it's, it's an economic concept to someone who benefits from a situation without having to fight for it. 
It's a free, free rider. rider. <laughs> free rider. But essentially, this kind of idea of the passager clandestin was applied to different countries in different contexts. Some people are talking about Ireland in the context of, of GDPR and, and tech taxation. So it's the big problem when it comes to having a digital Europe. Other people talk about Poland as a passager clandestin in the sense of the, the rule of law. And we've just had this big fuss about the Constitutional Court. Our podcast last week was, was about that. Um, uh, the UK is seen as a, as, a, as a kind of spoiler as well, um, trying to get some of the benefits of being associated with the UK. But in lots of the different areas we've been talking about, on the environment, there are other countries that are... How do you... A, it was very interesting to hear that kind of way of talking about other member states. It didn't feel very kind of comradely um, to talk about people in these sorts of terms. But also it shows that in France there is a real frustration, that there is a sense that you can only make Europe with pro-Europeans and that there are lots of countries that don't believe in the project and are trying to act in a more extractive way. Um, uh, and that is uh, is seen, I think, by various people here as a kind of structural problem, um, which is quite difficult to, to overcome. But I think we're getting uh, to the big question here, mm -hmm. which is what it means to be pro-European. Mm -hmm. We've had this discussion inside ECFR for a while and with other colleagues from other institutions too, I think. There are many ways to be pro-European. I think it is a bit dangerous to say the world in Europe right now divides itself between the pro and the anti-European because we are seeing in a number of countries and we're seeing it in France too where there is a high level of Euroscepticism now. Not um, least from former European commissioners like Michel Barnier absolutely. who's been talking about France not being bound by European laws which uh, uh, raised quite a few wry smiles in London after the, the Brexit negotiations. And it's, yeah, a bit depressing too, but there is really a sense of... What the, a question around what the European project is about for the French. And I, you know, I, I don't think the French want to get out of the EU at all. I think that was made pretty clear also in the last election. Marine Le Pen lost a lot of vote and credibility uh, when she said that she wanted to get out of the euro and the EU. And so there is a sense of attachment and belonging to the EU. But there is also a lot of disenchantment here on what being a European means, uh, what are the advantages for the French of being inside the EU? And I can totally understand that listening to this, uh, colleagues from other member states will raise their eyebrows quite a lot because France, uh, that's the contradiction of it, is considered to be a member state that you know, has a high political uh, agenda, is very ambitious, wants to push all of it. And, and there is a contradiction that the government pushes for this without having so much the support of the population. And the... the I think the big challenge for the government now, especially in the wake of the, the, the upcoming presidential election, will be to show that there are many ways of being pro-European and that a pro-European Macronian agenda is about digital growth, economic growth, um, living in a world where Europeans shouldn't fear the others. And that's going to be hard to demonstrate, but this is, this is the challenge that they're up against. But I think that is maybe where we'd be good to just end with a couple of reflections, because essentially you have where we started the podcast was the coming together of these two things, the French presidency and the presidential elections. 
and lots of people can see that for Macron, this is a big stage on which he's going to be kind of walking. Um, and in a way, it's an attempt to build a platform. You know, I, I, he's somebody who I think doesn't have to prove that he believes in Europe. He's, he's built his political career around it. But at the same time, it's a chance for him to, to, to build a big stage for himself to show that he's a global leader at the time of the elections. Um, but European issues are increasingly being, becoming part of French politics. And you've seen, I mean, we talked a bit about Michel Barnier and there, there is a primary um, in the Républicains, the centre-right party, where people are challenging the, the primacy of EU law and talking in quite tough terms. You have Marine Le Pen, who no longer wants to leave the euro, but basically is talking about refounding Europe as a, as a kind of zone for national sovereignty. And then you have these kind of outriders like Zemmour, this um, uh, journalist who's appeared from nowhere and is now kind of leading the polls as the challenger to, to Macron in some areas. And in fact, Marine Le Pen's father's even said that she might that he might vote for, for, for Zemmour instead of his daughter if he's the person most likely to, 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 to defeat Macron. Um, and he's running on quite a kind of uh, hard line uh, set of policies around Islam, around uh, integration, but also uh, posing sort of tough questions for, for Europe. How, how do you see the European issue being sort of weaponized in the French elections? Um, and what might the consequences be for the, for the position that the government adopts both during the presidency, but also in the longer term? You didn't even mention people on the left who are also contesting uh, the primacy of EU law. So the, the state of the political debate in France right now in Europe it is quite frightening. Um, I think this is why Macron wants to take the opportunity of the EU presidency to talk about Europe as much as possible. But to be fair, we're paying for 40 years of a non-existent European debate in France. Uh, it's hard to socialize, not just... Um, the French people, but actually the French elites to the European idea. This is a big difference compared to Germany, for instance. You've had two referendums. The Germans haven't had that. No, exactly. But but and so we had. So that's quite a lot of debate around that big split within the party within yeah, the main but parties. It's it's still it's part of the political debate, very punctually and usually in a very negative way. And you know there is this saying in France that if. You, you want a positive answer to something, you should certainly not put that question in a referendum because people will always answer negatively. But I think we are, we are seeing the risk of Europe being weaponized in a, quite a dramatic way. Again, because if, if we are pursuing the dialectic of being either pro or anti-European with no third or fourth or second option in the middle, then unfortunately people might decide to go the anti-European way. Um, there is very little uh, debate and discussion in France about the positive aspects that Europe brings. The very fact that France is a strong member of the European Union, that it does a lot inside Brussels. Brussels is very often blamed for all the negative negative things happening. And, and uh, when we feel that something positive is happening or that a French, so-called French idea, is winning in Brussels, the government says it very vocally. I, you know, I don't think we should care about whether it's French or Lithuanian or Spanish. Uh, if it wins and if it's in the benefit for the French and the Europeans, then that's how it should be portrayed. But we're quite far off from that. Um, the government right now is very conscious of this issue. It does want to make sure that Europe is portrayed in a more positive way, but I am a bit scared that 
it's a little, it's too little too late for now. Uh, so this has to be an effort during the French EU presidency. It has to be an effort during the presidential campaign. But my hope is that this effort is pursued beyond those two uh, electoral moments. Okay, well, we'll definitely come back during both the presidential campaign and the presidency to talk more about it. But I think we've run out of time for this podcast. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, however, which is our bookshelf segment. Tara, have you got any new books on your bookshelf since you were last on the podcast? So I am not reading a book right now, but um, a magazine, a monthly magazine called Philosophy Magazine, uh, whose title is Peut-on changer de, log de logique? So can we change our logic? Are we able to change? I think this is something that I'm thinking quite a bit right now. Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a big question. Um, we will put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do let other people know about it by giving us a positive review and a five-star rating on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on. We will be back very soon, but for now, from Tara Varma and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedel. Mm -hmm.